Well, good morning, church. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. If we haven't had the privilege of meeting yet, my name is Ryan, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. So excited to launch a brand new sermon series this week that we are calling Like No Other. It's going to go through um, the Gospel of John. We've called it Like No Other because John is making a pretty bold claim about who Jesus is. Um, and that bold claim is that Jesus really is like no other. And so we're so glad that you've joined us this morning. If you are new to faith, if you're a spiritually curious person, not really sure where you're at with Jesus, uh, this is a great Sunday for you to have shown up because uh, John has in mind, while he's writing, the spiritually curious person, the person who has heard about Jesus, but not sure what they think about him. And so this is a great series for you to follow along with. John is an eyewitness to the life and teachings of Jesus, as well as a very close friend of Jesus. And, and, and what we'll see throughout the series is that he's also an incredibly gifted communicator. John uses many masterful literary techniques to unpack the claims that he is making about Jesus. And although I would love for us to go verse by verse through the Gospel of John, um, it would probably take two years. And that's just not the kind of preacher I am. I kind of like to blend the verse by verse study with, with kind of the big picture themes. And so what we decided to do through the Gospel of John is pick out one of these literary um, techniques that John is using to try and communicate his message to his audience, and, and he, he uses many different literary ideas and themes to try and hammer home his main message, but one of the big picture, the overarching from kind of the beginning of the book to the end of the book, is this structure where he unpacks seven miracles and seven I am statements. So seven actions of Jesus and seven teachings of Jesus. They gave me a remote and told me I'm supposed to do my own slides this week, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, they also gave me a pointer, which was probably a mistake, um, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, so seven miracles of Jesus' actions and seven teachings of Jesus' statements about himself. And so John is using this overarching theme to make some really important claims that Jesus really is like no other. So that's our big picture idea for the next 15 weeks. And that's why we have Roman numerals on the stage. I know some of you were confused. There it is. We're going to go through seven uh, signs, seven. See, ah, seven. We got it. Yes. Um, so today is going to be the overview of the of the the things that John is trying to accomplish. I love that we all kind of got that at the same time. Uh, and then for the next 14 weeks, we'll cover seven miracles and seven I am's as they find themselves in John's narrative. Does that sound like a plan? Awesome. All right, let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful um, that you have preserved for us this gospel, this good news message written from one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, one who, who, who had a close seat to your teachings and to your miracles, and one who worked hard to preserve those teachings and miracles to persuade us that Jesus is the Son of God. That He did what He said He did, and that His teachings are worth following because 
He's conquered death in the grave. And so, God, these are big claims. These are big ideas for us to wrestle with. But if they're true, it changes everything. And so, Holy Spirit, just move throughout this room today. Communicate to each of us what you need us to hear. And may we not just be hearers of the word, but may we take what we hear. May we wrestle with it. And may we do something about it this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So if you want to follow along, we're going to be in John chapter 20, which some of you are mad at me about. I, I talked to a couple of you this week that were like, I started reading through the book of John, excited for the series. And I'm like, did you start in chapter one? Yeah, obviously. Well, that was a mistake. So anyway, we're going to be in John chapter 20 this week. Hopefully it'll make sense when we get there. Um, there's a famous quote from one of the first theologians that I was ever introduced to. In, um, I think, the fr- my freshman year of high school, shows you that I was a theological nerd um, at an early age, uh, by A.W. Tozer. And it says this, A.W. Tozer says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Him and C.S. Lewis got in a fistfight over this quote, but we don't have time to <laughs> deal with that. But Tozer says, What comes into your mind when you think about God? And if you're in here and you're not a Christian, you're not sure what you think about the Bible or faith. I, I think we could even input into Tozer's quote, what you think about when you think about the origins of existence, where we came from, why we're here, how we got here, and, and what the purpose of life is. That is extremely important. Because how you answer those questions, how you conceptualize your existence or your purpose will have massive implications for the direction of your life. It's actually, I, I would say it's the current of your life. It impacts every decision you make. Whether you realize it or not, a lot of us just have this presupposition in the back of our minds about how we got here, why we're here. If we believe in God, we have these presuppositions about what we think God is like. And because of those things, it impacts the way that we live. And so, many different theories and categories of theories to answer this question Historically, the most widely accepted, substantiated theory is intelligent design. Within that concept, um, the most popular of that is that the the Judeo-Christian God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is that intelligent designer. And then as you get deeper and deeper into the studies of Scripture, you'll see that the Bible is making a really clear claim that Jesus, this man who, who lived... Uh, on earth, that he actually is that God, that creator. John 1 would say, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Nothing was made that was not made through him. And so this, there's this theme, this big picture claim that the Bible is making that Jesus is God, like no other. It's widely accepted and substantiated by all kinds of history and archaeology and all kinds of things, but because you find yourself in church this morning, um, we're going to look at the Bible, right? Is that a good plan? We're going to look at what the Bible says about who Jesus claims to be. Why does it matter? How does it impact my life? So, John chapter 20, verse 30. This is towards the very end of his gospel, his book. And it's beautiful because John, unlike many biblical authors, actually tells us exactly why he's writing Oftentimes, we kind of have to figure it out ourselves, right? There's some interpretive keys, and we got to get into the text and really figure out, why is the author writing this book? What does it mean? How does it impact my life? John says, this is why I wrote this book. That's pretty helpful, right? 
That's why we're starting with this verse. John says, now, Jesus did many other signs. Actually, later in chapter 21, he'd say, uh, he did so many things that if we were to write them all down, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the book that would be written. John says, God, Jesus did so many things. We, we couldn't write them all down. But I wrote these down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. John is an eyewitness, close friend of Jesus, and he is writing this letter, wrote these things down to a mixed audience, both religious and non-religious readers who didn't get the privilege of seeing Jesus. But they've heard about Jesus and they understand the implications, the ripples that his life and teaching have caused in the world around them. And John's saying, you didn't get to see these things, so I'm writing them down for you so that you might consider Jesus' life and his teachings. You might consider whether or not he is who he says he is and whether or not he's worth trusting your life to. So, we're going to unpack this short statement for the rest of our time together. Um, it's There's a lot in here. It might not seem like that, but the deeper you get into it, you'll see that there's a lot in here. So hopefully, hopefully we can make it. First, he says, these are written. I'm going to do my best to control my slides, but now I'm nervous. All right. These are written. All of the, the, the Gospel of John is written down for this purpose. The New Testament starts with four Gospels, all explaining the life and teaching of Jesus. They're written from different perspectives and to different audiences. But John's really sticks out. It's unique to all the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. They give a summary of Christ's life, and, and all the, a, a huge majority of those teachings and miracles and parables, they're, they're very similar. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll, you'll feel like you've read the same book sometimes, right? Synoptic Gospels. John is extremely different, and it's different on purpose. John's Gospel is intentionally different than the other three, most likely written after those three, so he had those, that information in front of him. And while the others are kind of giving us history and overview, John wants to do a deep dive into the theology of what Jesus was teaching. He does so very creatively. Uh, a church father, uh, our early church father, Clement of Alexandria, for those of you, I'm trying to prove how smart I am. This is good, right? Clement of Alexandria writes this about the Gospel of John. He says, Last of all, John, perceiving that the external facts had been made plain. So, perceiving that Matthew, Mark, and Luke did a really good job of writing down all of the things that Jesus said, all of the things that Jesus did, John composed a spiritual gospel. John's goal is to preach to us. He wants us not just to grasp the teachings and ideas of Jesus, but he wants us to experience him personally. I'd say it, I'd illustrate it this way. The synoptic gospels are like security footage. You guys ever seen those clips on Facebook of people's like ring cameras, right? You can see everything that's going on. You can kind of see, hear, perceive. It's, it's a general concept of what's happening. But, but John wants to give us like a first-person VR headset so that we can like get into the story and play around with it and, and pull threads out and ideas out and mess with it. Like John is giving us a lot more detail 
so that we can get in there and see what's going on. It's written so that you can read and understand the overall message in one sitting, and you can dissect the details of the message for the rest of your life. And so my hope and my prayer is that as we scratch the surface of one single layer of this book of John together, whether you're brand new to the Bible or you've been a Christ follower for decades, that you would see Jesus more clearly, that you would know him more deeply, and that you would obey him more fully. That's John's purpose. He's writing these things so that we can see who Jesus is, what he's like, and that he's worth following. He says, I've written these things so that you might believe. It's important to realize that oftentimes seemingly simple English words in the Bible are actually translations of Greek words or Hebrew words that are written within a very specific cultural context, right? So many people use this. This is a soapbox I have. I'm going to step on my soapbox. A lot of people will use this as an argument that the Bible is like impossible to understand. There's too many things have happened, too many translations have happened. But I would argue that it's actually, we actually have a better understanding of what the Bible's actual message was because of how many manuscripts we have, how much history and archaeology we have. Like there's so much that actually adds depth and value and meaning to the teachings of Jesus. And so many Christians in America would argue for a plain reading of the Bible. I agree that you can understand the overarching ideas of the Bible by plainly reading a translation in your own language. However, biblical words are often misunderstood because they get reduced down to the simplest form or they get taken out of their cultural context and placed into our cultural context. And believe is one of those words I think that the American church has kind of drifted away from the original meaning of the text. It's one of those words that's lost its original meaning because we've kind of reduced it down to its simplest form, and we've taken it out of its cultural context and placed it into our cultural context. See, in America, believe is mostly an intellectual idea, right? I, I, I agree with something in my head. I know something is true. I accept it as fact. And this definition has crept into the way that many Christians preach the gospel today. An intellectual argument is made about who God is, about the existence of sin, and about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And then they'll, they'll say, disagree with this. Pray to Jesus. Tell him that you believe. You agree with this message. Repeat this prayer after me. Anybody ever heard a gospel preached like that? I was um, a couple, well, wow. I can't say that anymore. I was going to say a couple years ago when I was in college. It's just not true. It's just not true. When I was in college, many years ago, uh, we were required to do um, these kind of, we, we were required to volunteer and do missions work. And so I went to the, the one that seemed the most exciting to me. It was called the Word of Life Super Bowl. It was an all-nighter. You guys ever you know these things, teenage all-nighters? Yeah, right? No. No. It's not as fun as it sounds, but in college, I was like, I can do this. So we're like bouncing around to like roller rinks and, and, and like um, football fields. And we went to a, a hockey game, a minor league hockey game. And I'll never forget this guy coming down on the ice to preach the gospel, to tell these kids about Jesus. And he told them this story about a kid the previous year 
He was preaching the gospel. He was like, Jesus died for your sins. And he said, you know, last year we had a girl that she responded to this message. She wanted to, 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 to believe in Jesus. And so she came down on the ice and, and she slipped and she fell and she cracked her head open. And she, she died that night. But thank God that she believed in Jesus. And, and you're not promised tomorrow. And so you need to believe in Jesus. You need to agree that Jesus is who he said he is, did what he, and I'm like sitting there as like, somewhat of a realized adult at this point, and I'm like, such a distortion, such a, a reduction of what the, the, the full message of the gospel is. They were, they were just trying to convince these kids to agree with a statement and then repeat a prayer after them, and that was it. And this is not the gospel message of the New Testament. Read the New Testament with any level of intellectual of intellectual integrity, and you won't hear Jesus asking you to just agree with something, pray a prayer, and move on with your life. So, if, if believe isn't just this intellectual agreement, what does it mean in the context? Many Greek scholars prefer the translation trust, and some prefer even a stronger version of the word. Some prefer the, the idea of allegiance. We actually have some writings of a military general around the same time that Jesus was alive telling ally soldiers, repent and believe in me as the general. Same phrasing that Jesus says when he says, repent and believe in me. Jesus himself seems to use believe and follow as synonyms for his call to action for disciples. So it's not just intellectually agree with. It's, it's, it's deeper than that. It's more than that. It's similar to follow, to trust, to place your allegiance in. Now, this doesn't mean that intellectual agreement isn't involved. And this doesn't mean that those people preaching the gospel at that Word of Life Super Bowl didn't have the best intentions in mind. It's not that they were getting the gospel wrong. It's that they were reducing it down to its simplest form. I love what Tim Mackey says. He says, biblical faith begins with reason begins with intellect, and results in committed action. So John is writing these things, the seven signs, the seven I am statements. He's writing them so that we might believe, trust, place our faith, our allegiance in Jesus as Lord, as God. I'm trying to think of a way to illustrate this idea of believe. A few years ago, I was in Indianapolis visiting my brother-in-law, and his brother has his pilot's license. And they were talking about, maybe we'll get Mark to fly us around Indy one day while you guys are here. And I was like, yeah, you know, that sounds wonderful. No, it doesn't. I hate heights. I've only flown commercially like three times at this point in my life. And so now you want me to get in a four-person propeller plane with a guy that I've never even met before? No, this is not going to happen, right? Now, it's not that I didn't believe that Mark could fly the plane. Like, I, don't, I have no reason to think my brother-in-law is a liar. And I have no reason to think that this guy's making up this story. I'm sure he's flown this plane before. I intellectually agree with the idea that he can fly a plane. But I sure as heck don't believe it to my bones that I'm going to get in the plane, right? So I'm taking a nap one afternoon during the visit, and I get woken up to, hey, get up, we're going to the airport, and we're going to let Mark fly us in a plane. And I'm like, no, we're not. We're not doing that. 
Like, I just woke up from a nap, and like, within 30 minutes, I don't know how this happened, within 30 minutes, I went from being on my bed to in a plane with a guy I've never met before. <laughs> That's belief. I got on the plane. Like, intellectual agreement that Mark can fly a plane, that's part of belief, but getting on the plane demonstrates that I actually trust that this guy can get us into the air and back on the ground without me dying. And here's the thing. Because I didn't know who he was, barely met him, I know my brother, I trust my, or my brother-in-law, I trust him, but my faith in Mark's ability to fly this plane was at like 50.001% faith, right? Like just enough to get me onto the plane, just barely enough. But what John is going to do in the rest of this verse is he's going, to, he's going to say, I don't want you to just have like just enough confidence to believe. He's going to say, I, he's going to say I'm, going to get, I'm writing these things down to you so that you can be so confident in who Jesus is and what he has done. It might start with 50.0001%, but I want you to grow in your depth of knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is. He says, I've written these so that you might believe or trust or place your allegiance in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. So John's going to build a resume for us about who he believes that Jesus is and why we should be able to do this big thing that he's asking us to do. Because he's asking us to do a big thing. He's not asking us to just intellectually agree. That's a small thing, right? Like, believing that Mark can fly the plane is a small thing. Getting onto the plane is a big thing. And I believe what John's saying here is he's saying he's asking us to get onto the plane. Not just to agree that Jesus can fly the plane, but to get onto the plane. And that is a big ask. And because it's a big ask, he's going to tell us why he thinks that we can trust Jesus. That he is the Christ, the Son of God. John is writing this gospel to persuade unbelievers that Jesus is worthy to be trusted. And to deepen believers' faith in who Jesus is. These are big claims. This is a big ask. This isn't lost on me, right? Like, this is a big claim. This is a big ask. And so he's not going to do it. He's not going to ask us to do it blindly, but he's going to build for us a systematic theology from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that Jesus is who he says he is and he can be trusted. First, he's going to make the claim that Jesus is the Christ. Now, we often see this word after Jesus' name, correct? And so, void from Greek cultural context or Roman cultural context or void from an understanding of the Old Testament, we might think that Christ is Jesus' last name. Anybody think that? Am I the only one? I'm just kidding. I went to Bible college. Okay. So, you might think that, but it's actually a title. It's not a name. The word Christ in Greek is the, uh, the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Literally, it means the anointed one. This is cool information, but it doesn't mean much to us in America in 2023. If you were at like a networking dinner for your job and somebody introduced themselves as the anointed one, probably creeped you out a little bit, right? Like, what do you mean, the anointed one? But the Jews who were steeped in an understanding of the Old Testament would have known exactly what John was saying when he was claiming that Jesus is the anointed one. How many of you uh, are fans of Wikipedia? No one's fans of Wikipedia. How many of you use Wikipedia? You don't have to be fans of it. Okay, more of us use it than are fans of it. So you ever find yourself reading a Wikipedia article and then you see 
another person's name or a, a date or something that's in blue. And you're like, I want to learn more about that. So you click on that. And now you've got, like, by the time you've read one Wikipedia article, you actually have seven Wikipedia articles open. Am I the only one? So, so oftentimes what John is doing in the gospel is he's, he's actually hyperlinking to an idea, another idea. So he's making one statement, but then he's putting Christ and Son of God in blue for the Jews who know the history so that they can click on it. I'm stealing this illustration from Tim Mackey, the hyperlink idea. I love it. Because it's like the Jews knew when he said Christ, they knew they were going back to a whole new page of information. So let's go to that page and learn what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. In the Old Testament, anointing was a religious ceremony done for both places and people. And upon further study of those places and people that were anointed in the Old Testament, we will see that John is making a very distinct, clear claim about who Jesus is and about what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. So, places and people are anointed. There's a story about Jacob, one of the fathers of the nation of Israel. Um, He has an encounter with God. He's asleep on a stone. And God meets him, shows up to him in a dream, comes down and communicates with him. And after Jacob wakes up, he anoints the stone. He says, this is a place, this is Bethel, the place of God, a place where God meets his people. Later, we'll see the tabernacle is anointed with oil. The tabernacle is where God's presence dwelt on earth. Also, the altar, where sacrifices were given to God to restore his relationship with his people, was anointed. So, with those places in mind, we can begin to see that anointing has something to do with the intersection between God and man or heaven and earth. Places are anointed. And then, people are also anointed. The first person we see anointed in the Bible is Aaron the high priest. The person who would represent the people to God. He would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people for forgiveness of sins. We have the priests being anointed. Then we have the kings of Israel being anointed. Ultimately, David, the king of Israel, whom God said, I will establish your kingdom, your rule, and your reign forever. He is anointed. He ruled the people according to the will of God. The promises of God in the Old Testament get clearer and clearer throughout the Old Testament. So in Genesis chapter 3, we have God saying, I will restore, uh, I will restore my relationship with humans and God um, through the seed of a woman. Someone born of a woman will restore God and man. And then it gets more specific and more specific. It's going to happen through Abraham, through the nation of Israel, and then it's going to happen through the line of David. So the anointed ones are the priests, the kings, and the prophets who speak to the people on behalf of God. So John is saying, I wrote this gospel so that you might trust in Jesus, who is the ultimate fulfillment of these anointed ones. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of the anointed ones. He is the final culmination of all three of these groups of people. Jesus is the ultimate prophet who speaks truth to people on behalf of God. He is the great high priest who offers the final word and perfect sacrifice on behalf of us to God. The the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, the great high priest. He is the eternal king who raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sat down at the right hand of 
the Father. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this anointing ceremony in the Old Testament. He is the Christ, the anointed one. John is building for us a resume about who Jesus is. He's saying, this big ask that I'm making of you, I'm asking you to to place your faith, your trust, your allegiance in this person, but he's worthy to be trusted because he's not just some guy that can do some magical things and have some powerful religious teachings. He is the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament. He is the anointed one, the one who speaks God's truth on behalf of God to the people. He, 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 he builds this bridge between heaven and earth, bringing back together once and for all God's people to God. It's making sense? Okay. So he says, Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the ultimate fulfillment, and also he is the son of God. Just in case the anointed one, all of God's promises fulfilled in one person wasn't enough, he gives you another title that Jesus fulfills. The title emphasizes the dual nature of Christ's existence. He is both fully God and fully man. He intentionally came to earth to be our sympathetic high priest, to live uh, a perfect life, tempted as we are tempted, so that, that, so that we might know that it's possible to overcome sin, offering an eternal atoning sacrifice. Again, Son of God is another hyperlink for the Jews. Jesus actually isn't the first Son of God. In Luke's genealogy of Jesus, he, he's tracing Jesus' lineage all the way back the beginning of creation. And in that account, it says, Adam, the son of God. And so Adam was set up as the first representative between humanity and God. God's saying, Adam is my representative for the human race. I'm putting him in the garden. I'm giving him authority and dominion over all of these things. Adam and Eve come together. They have leadership and authority over creation. And he gives them one command. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the only thing. You're my representative. Just trust me. Obey me. Believe in me. Have faith in me. You guys know that story? <laughs> he fails, right? He fails humanity. And, and, and this, there's this thing that happens. Sin comes into the world. And there's a broken relationship between God and humanity. Adam failed to trust and obey God in a perfect garden. But what John here is saying is that Jesus came as the second Adam, the, the, the next representative between humanity and God, the ultimate and perfect uh, representative between humanity and God. Jesus, uh, where Adam failed in the garden, Jesus succeeded in the desert. He lived a perfect life. He, he, he fulfilled the thing that Adam was supposed to do. Adam's failure fractured relationships between God and man, but Christ's obedience provided the ultimate restoration between God and man. 1 Peter chapter 2 says it this way, For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you might follow, believe, trust in him, follow his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. So John is saying, I have written these things down so that you might trust. 
that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the prophets of the Old Testament who spoke the message of truth on behalf of God's people. That you might trust that he is the great high priest who offered one sacrifice once and for all. Why? Because he's the son of God, both man and God. He can take his eternal, spotless God blood and lay it on the mercy seat so that the temple, uh, or so that the curtain was torn from top to bottom, restoring once and for all a connection between humanity and himself. If people would just trust that Jesus is who he says he is, if they would follow and obey him, they might receive this restoration. John wrote this gospel so that you might trust in Jesus, the perfect fulfillment of prophet, priest, and king, the second Adam, fully God and fully man, achieving perfection on our behalf, offering us eternal redemption for sin. Why? Why does John want us to trust that Jesus is the anointed one, the Son of God? He says, so that, and, and by believing, you might have life in his The reason John's so passionate about this, the reason John so intentionally wrote down the the teachings and the statements and the miracles of Jesus is because John is convinced that if you would trust in Jesus, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ, the Second Adam, you would have life in His name. This might seem odd. Those of us who are reading this letter, are we alive? We're alive, right? If we can read the message of John, we're living. And so John's making a pretty bold claim here that those of us who are alive can have life. It's weird. It's a weird claim to tell people who are alive that they can have life. But as we will see throughout the Gospel of John, that, that, that Jesus makes this claim that there's like a, a new kind of life that can be lived. And it's twofold. It's both an eternal life in the future and an abundant life now. And when John makes these claims, he uses this illustration of light and darkness. He says, yeah, you're alive, but you're living in darkness. But if you would trust and believe that Jesus is this Son of God, Christ, who came to reconcile your broken relationship between you and God, if you would trust in that, that that you would move from darkness to light, that you would receive this abundant life, I'm starting to get to the age where I just wake up and hurt, right? For no, seemingly no reason at all. <laughs> Matt says it's getting worse. <laughs> this is a result of this broken relationship between us and God. Death is all of our ultimate consequence, right? We're all heading towards this one thing. There's there's no way that we can get out of it. We're going to die. But what John is making the claim here is he's saying, but if you would, if you would just trust that Jesus is God, he's like no other, and he lived the perfect life in your place for your sins, died, and he proved that he was who he says he was by raising from the dead, ascending into heaven, and sitting down at the right hand of the Father. If you would believe that, 
death means nothing to you. Because you've been given the free gift of eternal life. This is what he's telling Nicodemus in John chapter 3. For God, or put it in first person, Jesus could have easily said to Nicodemus, For I love the world so much that I am going to lay down my life so that anyone who would trust, place their faith, belief in me would have eternal life. I love N.T. Wright calls eternity with God the place with no tears. That the pains and aches are going away, the tears are going away. Because God loves us so much. This was the whole point of creating Adam and Eve to begin with, of putting him in this garden so they could have eternal relationship with God. That was fractured, and, and we've been living in the consequences of sin ever since. But Jesus came back as the second Adam and, and did all that he did in our place so that he might restore that relationship to himself. And we have this promised eternal life in the future. But not just an eternal life now or an eternal life in the future, but an abundant life now. So often I hear preachers preaching a gospel about where you go when you die, and that is absolutely true, and it matters, and it is important, and it is, it is part of the message of Jesus, but, but it's not the whole thing. It says we, we, we get transferred from darkness to light now. There is an abundant life when we realize how life was meant to live, that, it, that, that God intended for us to live in worship of Him and love of our neighbor. And I don't know about you, but something about that is really hard for me to accomplish because I'd rather live for myself. I'd rather do the things that I want to do when I want to do them. And again, I don't know about you, but it tends to me when I do those things, it makes my life harder. It's almost like, I'm kind of living in the darkness. Jesus came to light up a new way for us to live now, an abundant life. Trusting in Jesus enlightens us to the life, to life the way it was intended to be lived. Life focused on loving God and loving your neighbor. This frees you from bondage of sin and selfishness, and it gives you a more fulfilled life. John wrote this gospel. He wrote the seven miracles and I am statements to prove to you that Jesus is who he said he was and that through trusting in him, you might have eternal life. So, taking all the things we've unpacked so far, let's reread the text with some commentary in it. John says, now Jesus did many other signs, so many so that if they were written down, all of the books of the earth couldn't contain them. But these are written so that you may trust that Jesus is the anointed one, the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament. And he is the son of God, fully man, fully God, the second Adam, the perfect representative for humanity on behalf of us to God. And that by trusting in that message, you may have eternal life in the future and abundant life now in his name. a bold claim. I don't think this is lost on me. I don't think it's lost on John. He knows what he's asking is big. And he wrote this gospel to persuade us that this is truth. I think John knew 
what A.W. Tozer would say a couple thousand years later, that what you think about when you think about God is one of the most important things about you. It directs everything that you do, and John wants to convince you that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's worthy to be trusted. Because if you would believe that, if you would live in light of that truth, everything will be different. So if you're in here and you're a follower of Jesus, my prayer for you is that over the next 14 weeks, as we cover these miracles and these I am statements, that your trust in Jesus would be strengthened. As you deepen your understanding of who he is and what he's like, that you grow in your experience of the abundant life now and your confidence of the eternal life that is your promised inheritance in the future. If you're in here and you're not sure where you're at with Jesus, we're super glad you're here. Over the next 14 weeks, I hope that you consider this extremely bold claim that John is making about Jesus. However, I believe with all of my heart that this bold claim is truth. This is worth your time to investigate because if it is true, it literally changes everything. I've written these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the anointed one, the Son of God, and that through believing that you might have life in His name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. God in the flesh. Our great high priest who offered his own blood. Not because he deserved it, but because he loved us so very much. That he wanted to offer us all the free gift of eternal life in the future and abundant life now. If we would just trust him we just get in, get into the plane. God, I pray as we journey through the Gospel of John, we might see you more clearly, understand who you are more deeply, and strengthen our faith in you to not just agree with who you are, but to obey your teachings. God, may we be a community of people committed trusting in who you are. And may our lives never be the same because of it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, we're going to